Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science, the naked scientists. Hello and Happy New Year. It is Sunday, January the 9th, 2011, and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Kat Arney. Now this week, human dissection to teach anatomy. I'll be heading down the steps to the dissection room to find out what awaits every new medical student. And we're also joined by New Zealand-based doctor and filmmaker Paul Trotman, who met three people who chose to donate their bodies to science, then followed them all the way to the dissecting table and filmed the students who got to learn from them. It's an incredible story and the resulting film is called Donated to Science. And Paul's here to give us an insight into how it all came about. Chris. Thank you, Kat. Also this week, will IVF work for you? Scientists have developed a new blood test that can reveal the likelihood of success. Also, how chemical signals hidden in tears can alter the mood of other people and why going topless can harm your hearing. That's all on the way. You can get in touch if you want to with us. You tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook. It gets you there. Or you can drop us an email, of course. The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's top science stories. Kat, what have you got in store for us first? Yes, here's a story about how an IVF study could lead to a test to predict the success of the treatment's outcome. Now, more than 10% of couples worldwide are infertile, and some of them turn to in vitro fertilisation, or IVF, in the hope of having a baby. But it can be a really difficult and heartbreaking process for many couples, and there's no guarantee of success, although thousands of IVF babies are born healthy and bouncing every year. But now, a new study from researchers based in Glasgow and Bristol, published in the journal PLOS medicine could lead to a more accurate test to predict how likely a couple are to succeed with the procedure. And how does it work? Well, the researchers Scott Nelson and Debbie Lawler looked at the outcomes of every single IVF cycle in the UK between 2003 and 2007. Now, that's a staggering total of more than 144,000 IVF cycles. And they looked at a whole range of factors, including the age of the mother, how long the couple had been infertile for, previous IVF attempts, whether the mother's own eggs or donor eggs were used, and the particular techniques used for the process, then correlated that with whether the IVF was successful. 
successful and whether there were any problems with the babies, such as being born prematurely or being born particularly small. So they collected an enormous amount of data. Um, what did they actually do with it? Well, they fed it all into a computer and got something out of it. They used it to build a prediction programme that could estimate the chances of a couple successfully making an IVF baby. Now, this new model seems to be more accurate than the previous IVF prediction models as it's newer and it takes more factors into account. But the model is only based on looking at IVF cycles that have already happened that we know the outcome from. So the programme needs to really be tested in a forward-looking or prospective study. So in other words, longitudinally you recruit people, you use the test to predict the likelihood of success, then they go through the IVF and you see if you were right. Absolutely. And the scientists hope to gather this data over the coming years from couples going through the IVF process. And in one way to do this, they've made a web application that you can kind of use the predictor online and also even a smartphone app to help uh, couples get involved and test it out. Now, at the moment, it's only suitable for couples who've had their fertility, infertility investigated. But if it holds up, then uh, it could be a really useful predictor to help couples decide whether they want to go through with the IVF and some of the possible risks they may face in the process. We'll have to return to that and see how they get on Absolutely. after they finish the trial. Now, tears are traditionally judged to be a visual display of emotion and humans, it's claimed, are the only species that actually shed them. But now scientists in Israel have found that they can also carry chemical messages that can alter the mood of other people close by. And that's actually an observation that fits very well with previous studies carried out by someone called William Frey in the 1980s who showed that when you measure the composition of tears... Tears that are shed for emotional reasons differ biochemically from tears that are shed when the eye is just irritated. Now, what this group have done, it's a paper published in the journal Science this week by Shani Gelstein and her colleagues. They're based at the Edith Wolfson Medical Institute in Israel. What they found is that when they got two female volunteers and they showed them a tear-jerking bit of sad film footage, they collected the tears that these women shed and they also then dribbled some saline down the face of the, both of the women and collected the saline. Now, this is as a control, just in case anything was oozing out of the skin and getting into the tears. And they then recruited 24 male volunteers, and in a random order, unknown to the men or to the researchers, they presented to the nostrils of these men either the tears or the saline solution, and they asked the men to look at a series of pictures of women's faces and rate the attractiveness of those women. And at the same time, they asked the men to provide samples so they could measure testosterone levels, and they also brain-scanned them to see whether the brain showed signs of arousal, or, in other words, sexual arousal, the parts of the brain that get excited when you're excited. And what they found, interestingly, is that in 17 of the 24 subjects there was a significant reduction in their perception of the attractiveness of the female faces they were looking at when they sniffed the tears compared with when they sniffed the saline. And at the same time, there was a big reduction in their testosterone level and the brain scans also showed that the brain regions associated with arousal showed much lower activity in those men when they sniffed the tears. Now, the mechanism that's underlying all of this is unknown, the chemical which is in the tears that's doing this is unknown, and at the moment we only know that females produce the tears and it has this effect on men. We don't know what the effect will be on men on other men or men's tears on women or children's tears. Do they also exert some kind of effect and how does it work? 
It's interesting that the researchers say in their paper that this would kind of fit together, this observation, because we hug a crying loved one, they say, often placing our nose near teary cheeks, typically generating a pronounced nasal inhalation as we embrace. So in other words, there is the opportunity there for whatever smells uh, are in those tears to go up the nose of the recipient and therefore influence behaviour. So tears aren't just a visual display of emotion, they're also a chemical one which subverts the mood of the recipient too. Interesting. It was interesting how that one was reported in a lot of the press as well. <laughs> it was uh, fascinating. But um, from from just crying at weepy films to maybe do you cry at a piece of music? Now, I'm sure that almost all of us have a certain piece of music that causes chills to run up our spines. Music's so good, it elicits a genuine physical reaction. And now researchers at Montreal Neuro- Neurological Institute and Hospital have been exploring the brain basis of this experience. And to tell us more, we're joined by McGill University's Valerie Sutherland. Hi, Valerie. Hi, how are you? Great. Now, tell us a little bit about the background to this. So what what were you trying to find out with these experiments? Well, we know that music has been around for a very long time. We know that it's been around throughout history and in every single culture. And evidence for this goes as far back as history has been recorded. And we know that things that usually stick around for long periods of time are usually behaviors that are biologically adaptive or necessary for survival. But um, we're still somewhat unclear on how exactly music fits into this. So what we do know is that music makes us feel really good. In fact, um, the euphoric feelings produced by music have often been described as similar to um, the rush of very powerful drugs, like cocaine, for example. And um, interestingly, drugs like cocaine actually exert their effect on the dopamine reward circuit in the brain. And the reason why this is relevant is because this system in the brain is, an actually, is actually a um, phylogenetically ancient system, and it's evolved to reinforce highly adaptive behaviors, um, such as eating insects, for example. So when dopamine is released, um, these behaviours are strongly reinforced. So it's kind of the bit of the brain, the pleasure centre of the brain. Exactly. So how did you test whether this pleasure centre is linked to listening to music? We wanted to see if, um, if, if music is actually linked into the system. And this is, an, um, this is a hypothesis that's been around for a while. So a few researchers have attempted to examine this. They've all found um, with their colleagues that when you're listening to pleasurable music, there's some hemodynamic changes in the regions of the brain that are normally involved in dopaminergic reward. But the problem was that up until now, we didn't know if the neurotransmitter dopamine was actually involved. So we used a procedure called PET. Um, this is positron emission tomography. And this uses radio ligands to determine how much dopamine is actually released and where. And um, so people came in and they brought in their own um, self-selected music that was intensely pleasurable for them. And when they listened to it inside of the scanner, we actually found that they released dopamine. And this is sort of a big deal because the system is a very potent reinforcer and um, it actually, by definition, underlies our motivation and our desire to seek a reward. So they're basically getting a natural high from listening to these tunes? That's exactly it, yes, except that there are no severe consequences <laughs> like there would be with drugs, for example. Um, but one question I have, I mean, music is such a powerful thing in our culture. And how do you know that these people don't just, oh, I love this piece of Debussy because it was played at my wedding? How do you separate whether it's just a, a nice memory or whether it's actually the music? That's actually an excellent question because um, music has such tight links with our memory systems that it's really, really hard to separate out the two. And music is often um, used to sort of stimulate these pleasurable memories. So the way that we try to rule that out in our experiment is by doing extensive pilot testing where we ask people, is this in any way associated with a specific episodic memory in your life? For example, as you mentioned, your wedding or a summer in your life or graduation or some other happy time that they've had. And if that were the case, then we didn't use those participants or those particular stimuli in our experiment. 
because we had to try to rule it out. Now, having said that, this is something that can happen unconsciously. People wouldn't necessarily be aware of the fact that they do have some sort of a memory associated with this piece of music. So in our next experiment, we'll be... Um, using new music that people have never heard before and try to see if we can replicate these findings with something that they can't have any um, previous memories associated with. So what, what is it in music that makes us have this emotional experience? Is there any information about, you know, is it a specific tune or chord sequences? Um, well, it seems to be um, somewhat different for different people, which is really what's fascinating about it, because it seems to be very much a cognitive reward. It's almost as um, our experience of pleasure to it is all sort of dependent on how we're following the tone sequences that we hear. An example of this is that uh, if you hear a single tone, that's not really pleasurable for you. But um, if you hear a series of these single tones over time, that can become some of the most pleasurable and intense experiences that humans have ever reported. So how exactly does this happen? Well, David Huron, for example, um, has a book called Sweet Anticipation, and he explains this very nicely, where we develop a sense of anticipation to where these notes are going to go, and then our expectations can either be confirmed or we may be surprised, but either way, um, it seems like composers sort of know this, and they try to manipulate our emotional arousal with the way that they're sequencing these tones. And this is probably why our appreciation of music is largely cortical or um, intellectual or cognitive, if you will. And our results actually provide very nice evidence to support this hypothesis because we found that right before we combined our PET procedure with fMRI, so we can get some temporal information on um, what's happening in the brain as well, and we found that right before this um, peak emotional response, which we measured by chills, for example, in our study, participants were actually showing dopamine release in different regions of the reinforcement circuit that has very strong connections with the frontal cortex. Now, the frontal cortex of the brain is a part that's highly developed in humans, and it's basically what separates us from lower order primates, um, and it houses complex thinking. So what we see here is um, evidence that this uh, complex or abstract appreciation of an aesthetic stimulus, which in this case was music, is also tapping into the same dopaminergic system that reinforces the most fundamentally rewarding and biologically adaptive behaviors, um, such as food and sex. And um, the same system also produces the same intense euphoric feelings of addictive drugs, such as cocaine. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And as a musician, I hope you find out what the key the key is to making everyone love your music. That is uh, Valerie Salimpour from McGill University in Canada. And you can find more about that story. It's published online in the journal Nature Neuroscience this week. Chris. Thank you, Kat. Now, for many people, the sound of a dental drill is enough to send shivers down their spines. Um, mine included, although I've never had a filling, actually. I'm very lucky, probably because of fluoride in the drinking water. But for people who aren't so lucky as me and do have to go under the drill or do have to listen to one, then an invention from Brian Miller and his team at King's College in London might be helpful. They've actually come up with a system that can acoustically cancel the sound of a dental drill. So in the same way as you would use noise-cancelling headphones if you were going on an aeroplane flight or in a noisy environment, they've got this gadget which has been specifically designed to screen out the sound of the dental drill whilst leaving normal audio frequencies such as your conversation with the dentist untouched. Now, Brian Miller says he got the idea for the invention from originally uh, an idea that Lotus were trying to develop, which was uh, an in-car invention to make the ride a bit better for passengers, because by introducing anti-sound into the car, you could screen out some of the road noise. In other words, what you do is you measure the kind of noises that are coming into the car from outside, you then produce sound waves, which are the mirror image of those noisy sound waves, and the two meet and cancel each other out, and the environment is quieter.
Um, he decided to do this for the dental drill, and the, the prototype gadget they've come up with is a system that's actually compatible with your average MP3 player. So if a patient comes in with an MP3 player, what you would do is unplug your headphones from your MP3 player, plug this gadget into the MP3 player, and then plug your headphones into the gadget. And what that means is that the music comes through normally, so you can listen to music, or if you don't want to listen to music, you don't have to listen to anything, but the gadget is listening to the environment, producing anti-sound for the dental drill noises and everything else is allowed to pass through untouched and it reduces the exposure to that sound that the patient gets. So it sounds like a good idea. Have you had any fillings, Kat? Um, yes, I only recently had to have them, though, because I never had any fillings for ages. But I get my fillings done by laser because I'm absolutely petrified of having drilling and injections. The only thing I can think about this, it sounds like a good idea, and in fact the team at, at King's College say they're looking for investment now. Um, Brian Miller says the beauty of this gadget is that it would be fairly cost-effective for dentists to buy and any patient with an MP3 player could benefit from it at no extra cost. What we need now is an investor to develop the product further to enable us to bring this device to as many dental surgeries as possible and to help people whose fear of visiting the dentist stops them from seeking the oral health care they need. My only thought would be, well, it's not going to do anything about bone conduction, is it? Because um, when you're drilling into the tooth, there's going to be a lot of vibrations from the drill onto the tooth surface, and they will be very well conveyed from the jaw and the skull, uh, and the skull bones through into the inner ear. So you're still going to hear those and feel those vibrations. So I, I don't think it's going to be the answer to everything, but it might, I suppose, make it slightly less painful for some. Yeah, if you can stop... It's that kind of... noise. If they can stop that, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't do it again. Um, now, the other thing I mentioned at the beginning was this idea that going topless can harm your hearing. Um, what I was actually referring to is a study about cars, um, because despite their suave appeal, convertible cars should actually potentially carry a health warning, because there is a threat to your hearing if you are in one going at high speed. That's according to a guy called Anthony Mikulek and his colleagues. They're based at the um, St. Louis Medical School over in America. They've actually got this in a paper which is uh, in the Journal of Laryngology and Otology this week. Now, what they did was to study five different convertible cars. One of them was a Porsche 911, very nice. Don't know if they got a grant to buy the cars, um, but they certainly got to make some measurements of people driving them. They gave the passenger in the car recording and measuring equipment and told them to take random samples of the ambient noise exposure when the cars were driven at various speeds, both with the roof on and the roof off. And what they found is that with the roof off, doing as, as low as 55-ish miles an hour, the occupants of the car were already being exposed to sounds of about 85 decibel. Now, 85 decibels is said to be the safe cutoff. If you're exposed to sound of that loudness or greater for any appreciable period of time, this can have serious damaging effects on your hearing, probably because of mechanical but also metabolic stress on the tiny hair cells in the ear that convert sound waves into brain waves. Now, the real clincher, though, is that at 70-ish miles an hour and over, so that's about 120 kilometres an hour, the sounds that were being recorded from in the cars were well above this 85 decibel limit, and in one car's case, it was actually 100 decibels. Now, that's equivalent to running a chainsaw. And so therefore the sounds you're being exposed to are extremely loud. And so what Anthony Mikulek says is in the light of the results of this study, we're recommending that drivers be advised to drive with the top closed when travelling for extended periods of time at speeds exceeding 85.3 kilometres per hour. So it looks, Kat, that you'll be all right doing topless round town, um, but uh, not elsewhere. So that sounds sensible. You need those kind of big cans on to protect you. Absolutely. Well, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for each of those news stories are online on thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. It is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Coming up, of course, we'll uh, hear from medical students about their experiences of dissecting human bodies. We've got lots of questions coming in from people about that. We're hopefully we'll be answering some of those for you. We'll also find out why people do actually choose to leave their bodies to science in the first place. That's on the way. Fascinating stuff. But first, it's time for Planet Earth. Now, scientists at Bangor University in North Wales have found that different species of deadly viper snakes tailor their venom to particular prey. Knowing about these venom variations can help save lives, as antivenoms develop for one type of snake may not actually work for another. And we sent Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham to meet researcher Wolfgang Vostar, who introduced him to the beautiful but deadly saw-scaled viper. The saw-scaled vipers do make a noise. When they're annoyed, they curl themselves up into a kind of figure of eight or pretzel-like position and rub their body coils against each other. And that produces a hissing or rubbing sound, which is really quite characteristic. I don't want to put my microphone too close to this, given that... Whoa! Don't worry. That's quite frisky. That's nothing. Now, you're manoeuvring the snake within the aquarium here, and you're using very long tongs to do this. So that noise was the scales rubbing against each other? Yes, it's their trademark defensive behaviour. If they get upset, which happens quite easily then they just coil themselves up into this kind of pretzel-like figure and rub the scales against each other while inflating themselves with air, and you get this slightly hollow-sounding hiss. And the hypothesis is that this reduces their water expenditure, which is what they would have if they hissed by breathing in and out, like most snakes do. This latest research has been conducted by Axel Barlow. He's found that the type of venom these vipers produce is adapted to the prey they eat. In these snakes, some species feed on vertebrate prey, like mammals and lizards, which is quite typical food for snakes, whereas different species eat quite unusual prey, uh, that's scorpions or, or centipedes. And we found that the variation in venom composition is down to these differences in prey. So the species that eat scorpions and centipedes have a venom that's specifically adapted to feeding on that type of prey. How did you do this research, other than carefully? <laughs> First, we looked at the diet composition of these snakes, because often, you know, real solid ecological data on snakes, such as what they actually feed on in the wild, is quite scarce. So we had to dissect hundreds of preserved museum specimens, and that allowed us to demonstrate clearly that there was variation in the types of prey consumed. We then reconstructed a molecular phylogeny of the snake. So really you're putting together what uh, an evolutionary tree of yeah. the relationship between the, the different species, different variations in the snakes. Yeah, that's it, exactly, and... By having this evolutionary tree, that can form a framework for us to test our hypotheses. So through establishing the variation in um, diet, we could then test the toxicity of venoms to a natural prey item, which in this case we chose a scorpion. And by mapping the data of venom toxicity and diet onto the evolutionary tree, we show that changes in diet in the evolutionary history of these snakes have been accompanied by an increase in venom toxicity to scorpions. Wolfgang, in terms of evolution, why do you think this is? Venom is expensive stuff. It costs the snakes a lot of energy to replenish their venom reserves after they've bitten the prey item. So for snakes that have a more or less specialised diet, it makes an awful lot of sense 
to produce a venom that is of high toxicity to that prey so that they only need a small amount to actually kill it. Are there implications of this research in terms of, of treating of snake bites? In the long term, we would hope so. Variation in venom composition is a ubiquitous phenomenon in snakes, and it's of great relevance for the treatment of bites. So this snake that's sitting behind Perspex here is a West African oscillated saw-scaled viper. The one in the cage underneath is a Pakistani saw-scaled viper. Now, if you were bitten by the uh, oscillated saw-scaled viper and you got a specific antivenom for that, you would have every chance of recovering and walking away from it. If you were to be given an antivenom against the Pakistani saw-scaled viper, you would have a 20% chance of dying. And sadly, that's actually happening nowadays because African countries with access to fewer and fewer antivenoms are now buying antivenom in from countries like India and Pakistan, and it turns out they don't work. So many people are dying needlessly as a result of that. What our research does is it starts to look at why we have this amount of variation in venom composition, and we're taking this further, and we're looking at the genetic mechanisms of that. So hopefully in the long term, it may allow us to predict which snakes are likely to have different venoms, which different venoms we may have to include in an antivenom when we design one for a particular area. So in the long term, we would hope that this would have a beneficial impact. Oh, that was uh, Wolfgang Wuster and Axel Barlow from Bangor University's Venomous Snake Facility, ending that report from uh, hopefully still alive Richard Hollingham. And you can download the latest Planet Earth podcast as well as find links to Planet Earth online on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Thank you, Kat. Very quickly, we've heard from Berrigan Betts in Second Life, who was listening to uh, the story we did on people smelling human tears. I'm just looking at Shani Gelstein's paper in Science Now, because his question is, did the subjects know it was tears they were sniffing? And uh, it says here, 24 men first sniffed a jar containing a compound, which was either fresh tears or, or saline, um, which was collected from the donor women. And then later on, they said uh, to keep them smelling the subject as the substance during the study, um, the compounds were deposited onto a pad pasted onto the subject's upper lip directly under his nostrils. So the subjects were blind to what they were actually smelling. They didn't know it was tears. They just knew that they were being asked to smell something. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking this week about the science of medical donation of your body for dissection. And we've had a very enthusiastic response on Twitter and Facebook from Neil Denham, from Emily Caesar and various other people who want to know a number of questions about the process of leaving your body to medical science, which I hope my visit to the dissection room, which is coming now, will help to answer. If you do uh, have any questions you'd like to put into us, then tweet them to at Naked Scientist. Go to our Facebook page, which is nakedscientist.com slash Facebook or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, for thousands of years, people have been studying and documenting human anatomy, and these days we do it to turn out well-trained physicians and surgeons. Students traditionally use bodies donated for dissections, as well as prosections, which are expertly prepared specimens that reveal the important structures they need to know about. But increasingly, medical schools are abandoning the dissection approach to teaching anatomy. So I went along to one place that still does it this way, that's Cambridge University, to find out what their students think of the process. Good. Now we have some lovely arteries showing here. This is the common carotid, and it's going to open into the external carotid, which is here, and the internal carotid, which is going to go up into the skull and supply the brain. And the external carotid there are over 600 different muscles, 428 named nerves, and 206 bones in the average adult human. And a medical student needs to know the names of all of them. We've got a nice prosection here of the side of the face, 
with the skin removed and some of the muscles. And now you can see a gland here. Do you know what that is? Parotid. Good. And coming out of the front of the parotid are a number of little structures. Do you know what they are? The, the um, facial nerve. Facial, facial nerve, yes. Like now, do you know any of the branches of the facial nerve? Like the zygomatic. But building up a mental picture of how all these different structures in the body fit together and in three dimensions is very difficult. And traditionally, trainee doctors have done it by dissection, cutting up human bodies, usually under the trained eye of an expert anatomist like Theo Welsh, whom you've just heard. So what do present-day students make of the process? I'm Abigail Lucas from Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, first-year medical student. I think it's really good because you can actually put it into perspective. Like you can look in the textbooks, but it's not the same as actually seeing it. It would be really difficult to do it and learn it properly with just textbooks, and it's really beneficial to actually get to see it, and then you can actually visualise it much better in like 3D. My name is Lahiru, and I'm from Hughes Hall. What I think of uh, dissections, I think it's fantastic... Um, is a really good way to learn anatomy. I mean, you get to see the structures that you don't normally see in textbooks. And what's the general opinion? People think this is positive. Yeah, I think they do. And medical students at universities elsewhere in the UK, do they, do they get the same learning experience? I think most of them don't. I think there's only a few places that still do. I know one of my friends, she's at Keel, they just use plastic models. We did that the other week and it was a lot more difficult to figure out where things were when you can't actually sort of move them and see where they attach properly. So the opportunity to do proper dissection seems to be really key to learning anatomy effectively, which is a sentiment that's echoed even by surgeons in training too, including this one, who's brushing up his knowledge of the subject by teaching it. My name is George Marsden. I completed my foundation years as a junior doctor in 2009, and I'm currently teaching anatomy for a year at Cambridge University as a junior anatomy demonstrator and we also do on-call shifts at the Adam Brooks Hospital in general surgery. So the idea is that for someone like yourself, because you've got to take higher exams in surgery as a would-be surgeon, doing something like this is a really good way to learn the anatomy. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the university where I trained, we weren't able to do dissection, and I really felt um, I missed out on anatomy, which has always interested me, and I realised I wanted to pursue a surgical career path and thought that teaching anatomy would be the, the best way of of learning it for myself and almost giving me a second chance to make up for lost time. So why are medical schools increasingly ditching dissection if it's so useful? And is Cambridge unusual in still teaching its anatomy this way? My name is Chris Constant. I'm clinical anatomist here in the Human Anatomy Centre at the Department of Physiology, Development and Neuroscience. Cambridge University is a bit unusual in uh, persisting with whole-body dissection as our method of teaching anatomy. We believe it is the best way by far to teach anatomy to our students so that when they go into practising medicine, it will mean something to them. Why, if it's so important, have so many medical schools stopped doing it? A number of reasons. Um, cost is one, the effort it takes to run a body donation programme, ethical and legal issues, the difficult issues of respect... And basically the organisation of such a programme is actually very costly, very time-consuming and uh, very demanding in every way. And many universities have found uh, alternative methods, things like plastinates and models and prosections and atlases and, of course, the new electronic resources such as videos and electronic media, which 
do have a lot to offer. So students at Cambridge are very lucky to still be able to do whole-body dissections. But one of my own most enduring memories of the first month of medical school was a nagging apprehension at the back of my mind about what it was actually going to be like to cut up a dead person. And talking to the students I met during my visit to the Cambridge dissection room, this seems to be quite a common experience. I'm Rowan de Caesar. I'm a first-year medical student at Clare College, Cambridge. When you were coming to medical school, were you at all concerned about the process of having to come and do dissections on dead people? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is concerned. It's obviously something very, very different because it's a human being. It's something very personal. But I kind of saw it as a benefit, and I think most people did because the Cambridge course is, is one of the best for anatomy because it does dissection. And, I mean, the first few sessions, they took us in very gently... They kind of covered up all the bodies and they kind of introduced us very slowly and um, eventually everyone gets used to it and anatomy is fascinating so it's very interesting and once you're into the course it's really good fun. Were you worried? Yeah and I still catch myself thinking this was a real human who was walking around and doing everyday normal activities and things but I think you get used to it and it's a really good way to learn. Claire Blackman who's a medical student at Cambridge. So if someone wants to donate their body for medical education, what should they do? Chris Constant again. They need to make that clear by signing the appropriate Human Tissue Authority form, consent form, which specifies what they want to be used for, how long we may keep their remains, how the material will be disposed of at the end. They need to inform their families. Um, Their families need to agree, although... That's not absolutely necessary, but we do like it if they, they're all in agreement. And, of course, they need to keep the necessary paperwork available so when the time comes, it is actually there and relevant and able to be used. Can anybody leave their body, or are there certain situations where you wouldn't accept a donation? Anyone can donate their body after death. However, when the time comes, we have certain criteria with which we have to comply and there are certain criteria which result in our having to reject someone's remains. The donors are aware of that when they sign the consent form that there is the possibility that their remains would not be accepted. And once the students have finished doing the dissections here, what do you do with the pieces they've dissected and then the body en masse? Uh, To begin with, all the parts remain together for each individual donor's remains. They are not mixed so that they are all returned to one particular coffin and then cremated or buried in accordance with the donor's wishes. Prior to that, we have a committal service here in the anatomy centre, in the dissecting room, at which students and others involved in dissection attend. The identity of the donors become known to the students they have a chance to pay their last respects and indeed write a tribute to each of the donors upon whom they have worked over the previous uh, academic year. And it's actually quite a moving event. By the time we're finished with the remains, they are respectfully buried or cremated in accordance with the wishes of the donor and everyone has their own remains. There's no mixing of parts. And what would you say to anyone who's considering leaving their body for a medical student to learn on like this? Oh, I I would be very encouraging. Uh, First of all, it's an extremely generous act. Um, It is something one can feel very good about. It benefits the students and ultimately 
the doctors that, that are made from the students and therefore the patients in years to come. So that what the donors are doing now in their lifetime to be carried out upon their death will benefit generations to come. I would be very positive. I think it's a great thing to do. And I think you can feel you've benefited people after the good you do in life has finally come to an end. Clinical anatomist Chris Constant from Cambridge University. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about donating your own body, there are details about the process on the HTA's website, which is at hta.org.uk. And we've just heard from C.B. Axel, who's listening to us in Second Life. Hello to all of you. He says, I cut up a heart yesterday, and it's much cooler than looking at pictures, I presume he means in terms of actually the learning experience that it offers. Cat. Not just cool. Uh, so would you donate your body to science after your death? And as we've heard, we've had a few people on Twitter uh, asking questions and saying whether they would or not. Some people say they already had, um, hopefully would donate, not are already dead and still on Twitter. Uh, some people flat out refusing and others who know they should, but just can't bring themselves to do it. So what is it that actually drives someone to make this decision? And we're joined here by uh, Paul Trotman, who's a physician and a filmmaker from New Zealand, who's created the film Donated to Science, looking at this exact issue from both the donor's perspective and that of the medical student. So hi, Paul. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, Let's just ask you a little bit about the background to this. Why did you decide to do this? It's a bit of a slightly macabre subject. I've been making medical films now for about 10 years. Even when I was first qualified, I um, actually moved from New Zealand to the UK and spent my time doing locums and writing comedy and Edinburgh festival shows and that sort of thing. And um, I swore that the last two things I was going to do would be make documentaries or do medical stuff. Um, I've ended up doing both and I'm having an absolute ball. So you never know. I just made a film about how you become an organ donor um, and we followed or recreated the, the journey of a, of a couple of people to becoming organ donors. Um, I used an actor to play the part of the donor but then interviewed parents of people who'd become donors or partners of people who'd become donors and all of the doctors and surgeons involved along the way. We ended up with a very powerful film about that, that sort of journey and I thought, well, The other one that's sort of similar is people donating their bodies to the medical school. But there's no way anybody would ever let me do a film like that. So I was talking to a friend who worked in the anatomy department who said, well, go and talk to the professor of the department because she's quite interested in that sort of thing. And in the end, getting permission to make the film was actually the easiest part of it. I went to her. She had literally just come out of a meeting with with some of the undertakers in the town who said, we really need something to show the members of the public who are wanting to donate their bodies what happens. And then I walked in her door and said, I'd like to make a film about people donating their bodies. And after sort of six months of applications to ethics committees and examiners of anatomy and all that sort of thing, we got the permission. It's probably the only film that's ever been made that needed ethics committee clearance to make it. Quite probably. So how many people did you talk to and and what sort of reasons did they give for Um, wanting to give their bodies? What we did was we contacted everybody on the list to donate their body to the medical school and asked if people were interested and we filtered them down and we ended up interviewing six people of whom three made it into the film. And the the reason that the three made it into the film was that, that, that they knew that they were dying they knew that we would get to film their particular bodies and um, the reasons people gave the most common one was uh, me or a member of my family has had a lot of of 
input from the health profession over the years, and I just want to give something back. The next reason was I don't really want to have a funeral. I don't like funerals. I don't want to, to leave that as a burden on my family. And the third reason was, well, I'm not going to need it. I'll be dead. I guess so. Um, but you sort of followed all these people all the way through and then talked to medical students as well. Now, how did the medical students feel about this whole thing? Because they, didn't they get to hear from the people who donated their bodies? Yeah, what, what we did was we, we literally interviewed these patients and then waited for them to die. And then on the first day of, of med school, I stood up in front of the class and we said, we're making a documentary, we're looking for volunteers. And we started off with about 30 volunteers from a class of about 200. And we whittled them down to about 20 who we followed all the way through. We had a couple of dropouts and we used about 10 of those students in the film. And I think partly because they were in the film, they actually put a little bit more thought into what they were doing. Um, and initially, we, we hadn't had the idea that, that you mentioned before, which is that once they'd finished the dissection and we'd give, done their last interview with them about what the dissection was like and we'd filmed them saying goodbye to the body and, and, and it, it heading away, we said to them, would you guys like to see the interviews with the people you dissected? Every single one of the students said yes. So we, we arranged a showing to show them the, these interviews with, with the donors and then we interviewed them again straight afterwards. We literally took them out of the viewing room where they watched the interview and then said, OK, what was it like? And we got the most extraordinary reactions. A complete range from this guy is the same age as my father. He died young without any grey in his hair and I've just taken him to pieces. Through to I wish I'd seen this at the start because I now understand that there's really no connection between the person when they were alive and what remained of them that I dissected. What do you hope to achieve with this film? Do you hope to achieve more people leaving their bodies to science or maybe more respect for students working with, I, I, uh, I, with people? I think really all I want to do is in, let people know what happens and what happens to their bodies and how they're treated and let people look inside the dissection room and then let people make their own minds up. I really didn't have an agenda when I set out to make the film at all. It was just to make a good film and to take people somewhere where they hadn't been before. And what has the response been like to people who've seen the film? It's been very interesting. I mean, getting the film made in the first place was the easy bit. Getting somebody to broadcast it was a lot more difficult. It was initially with Television New Zealand, who then changed their mind and, and decided it was too hard for them. Went to Television 3 in New Zealand, which is another broadcaster, who, who said yes and then got cold feet, um, but then stuck with it. And when it was broadcast, there was an amazing reaction. It, it got huge audiences, and the whole country was talking about it the next day, uh, and everybody was positive. The um, professor of anatomy tried to walk across the university the next morning and barely made it from the number of people who stopped her. Um, I happened to be working at the hospital at the time and um, the person I was working for was just getting rolling her eyes whenever we got to another ward on our ward round and somebody would say, oh Paul I saw your film last night, it was really amazing and I got the sort of reviews that I never ever dreamed of getting. Just absolutely praise from every quarter, it was just amazing.
And do you hope to take it uh, further afield to maybe other countries in the world, perhaps here in the UK? Yeah, it would be great. I mean, at the moment, we've got a showing at the Royal College of Surgeons next week on Thursday as part of their public education program. And uh, it's a, a free showing and the, they've got a booking number on their website. But it'd be really nice to get it broadcast on TV here. It does sound absolutely fascinating. And have you got any plans to, to do this kind of thing again? Or are you going to turn to a different subject for your next documentary? I've just finished a film about pig cell transplants, but we're also making a, a sequel to this film where we're following the same medical students through their clinical training on the wards. And again, we're not looking at the sort of physical what they do. We're looking at the emotional impact that, that some of the things that happen to medical students have on the students. I mean, having known medical students, my, my ex-boyfriend was a was a doctor. It is amazing how, in some ways, wrapped up they get in it, and then also, in some ways, how detached they get from it. Are you hoping to try and capture those kind of feelings? Yeah, what what we what we found in this film was that the students actually grew up a huge amount between the day before they'd been in the dissection room for the first time and the day they left the dissection room nearly two years later. And we're, we're noting sim, noticing similar sort of changes in the students now as we're filming them on the wards. That they're, they're, they're becoming a little bit more hardened to, to what's going on around them. And they're, they're finding some things incredibly difficult. Well, I really uh, can't wait to see the next film that you make. But uh, thanks very much for talking to us. That's Paul Trotman. And we've got a little 10-minute clip of your film on our website now. You can find that at com slash anatomy. And, uh, yeah, I'll see if I can make it along to the showing next week at the Royal College of Surgeons. That sounds fascinating. Thank you, Kat. Yes, you mentioned uh, that we did run this little inquiry on Twitter, Ben Valsler. Uh, asked you, would you donate your body? And about twice as many people said they would as said they wouldn't. Uh, summary of some of the answers. Richard Tomsitz said, um, jokingly, I presume, yes, and I intend to tattoo some witty or crude messages to future students on my nether regions. Um, tweeting Technology said, tried with my mum's uh, body before she died, with her enthusiastic approval, but the teaching hospital took it to be some kind of free funeral scam. Uh, Rick Boland said he already has. Um, someone else says, obviously, once I'm dead. And another person says, uh, James Duplessis, I would if they promised not to laugh. People said no. Uh, Madeline Lum said, quite happily donate blood, but can't donate organs or body to science after death. I can't figure out why I feel this way, though. And Philippa is slightly sceptical about what she thinks medical students might get up to with cadavers. A couple of questions that came in. Roger Rowe on Facebook says, well, how often do trainee doctors examining a body find something unusual? Well, I can tell you, Roger, that there are differences from one person to the next, and sometimes when you do these dissections, you do find these uh, slight differences from one body to the next in terms of the anatomy, that some people have additional accessory blood vessels, some people have uh, different structures in certain places, some people have complete reversal of their internal organs, so-called situs inversus or dextrocardia, that kind of thing. So they do crop up, although rarely. Um, also, if someone has got a very significant disease, then sometimes that can be a reason that the body can't be used for dissection purposes because the disease means that the person can't learn the normal anatomy or architecture of organs because the disease has meant that, that they're not normal anymore. Overall, though, a very enthusiastic response and a very interesting set of perspectives, so thank you all for that. Well, moving on now to our naked engineering, and we join Mira and Dave, who have found a newfound respect for the way that we move. For this week's Naked Engineering, Dave and I are looking into prosthetics or artificial limbs. You've got us walking up and down in front of a building here. Why are we doing this? Well, we're looking at artificial limbs, particularly artificial legs. If you want to make an artificial leg, you've got to understand how the natural 
one works and what it's actually doing. So if we stop now and walk very, very slowly, first of all, your leg kind of just swings forward, almost like a pendulum, and the knee slightly bends as it does it, which lifts your foot off the ground so it doesn't drag across the floor. Then your heel hits the ground, and then you kind of roll over the top of that heel, and you move forward. And then eventually your toe leaves the ground, you push off with the toe, and then your leg swings forward again. So if you're going to build artificial legs, you've got an awful lot of things to think about, and you don't have the advantage of muscles or any way of controlling them. So you've got to somehow copy these effects with effectively a much more simple mechanical system. To find out how artificial limb designers mimic our bodies in this way, we've come along to Blatchford Prosthetics here in Hampshire to meet their technical director, Saeed Zahedi. Historically, uh, the prosthetic leg has been making the sockets from wood or leather, metal, aluminium sheet, and then having components like a knee joint and a foot and ankle joint and a pylon connecting the two together, which is like a peg leg, like a long john silver leg. If you think about the peg leg, you can just stand on it. You can hop on it, swing your leg outside and, and step from A to B in a very, very difficult way, very energetic way. Uh, when you apply a knee joint, you can swing the leg a bit more easier and there's less, a bit less energy involved, but that's about it. You're really then using other parts of your body and compensating for the fact that there is this limited movement in the prosthetic. Exactly, and I think that's where the major breakthrough has been for us, to understand better this nature of compensation. In order to understand a bit more about this compensation and just how the body can react to using prosthetics, we've also got Nigel Kingston here, a fellow Blatchford employee, who at the age of 30, due to an arthritic knee joint, had to lose his left leg. So, Nigel, I guess when you were first fitted with a prosthetic, how did your body compensate? What did you have to think about when simply just walking down the street? I think probably the biggest thing is slopes for an amputee. There are very few flat surfaces and it involves the whole of our body having to compensate. Something, a typical thing is if I'm standing on a slope with a standard fixed ankle, I'd be spending most of my time weight-bearing on my sound side, which is the right side. You can feel a, a lot of pressure in the lower back. My right thigh muscle is twitching because after a while it's just fighting and saying, I want to give up now, I've had enough. So the fundamental problem is that if you've got a fixed ankle at 90 degrees, if you try and line that up with a slope of 10 degrees, you've either got to be sort of hanging off in midair, leaning forwards, or you've just got to almost ignore that leg entirely. You're entirely balancing on on the sound side, really, and the the prosthetic side is just there as something of a minor support. So, Saeed, as Nigel mentioned then, the real problem to date has been uneven surfaces, and to do with this has been the fact that prosthetics have had fixed feet so your new design here at Blatchford though the echelon foot a flexible ankle prosthetic overcomes that problem the way it was conceived was basically trying to find out what are the limitations that the amputee like Nigel will be facing and to do that we started looking at the way the ankle and foot function do work in relation to the ground we started looking more closely at the function of the ankle and we looked at the way the muscle works and the muscles on a normal human body effectively they can stretch but in a controlled manner they can generate forces at the rate which is in the control of the of the person we have one of your echelon foot designs here in front of us and um, this one it's about a foot long and um, it's made of carbon fiber it has about three elements the toe spring, which is made up of carbon fibre composites, and that toe spring acts like a cantilever spring, 
which enables the body mass energies to be absorbed and then returned at the right moment in the gait cycle to effectively deliver some sort of a push-off force in the absence of the active calf muscles that is lost in the amputation. So as the foot rolls forward, you're storing energy in that spring, which is then released as you kind of push off? Correct. You're almost bending that spring to its limit, and then at the right moment when you take the weight off from the prosthetic side, then that's released. The other element is the heel spring, which again is effectively designed to be able to absorb the energy which is created at the point of the collision. If you can visualize the gait cycle as a rhythmical sequence of collision and push-off, you want to be able to absorb the energy at the collision state and use the en- some of the energy during the push-off phase to be able to assist the amputee. This sequence of or the rhythm of collision and the push-off needs to be smoothened out. Hence, we have got the hydraulic element in the middle of all this. This is attached really at, well, where the leg would be attached to a foot. That's almost roughly where the ankle joint is. That element effectively acts as a damper. Now, if you have got a damping element in there, the amputee naturally, under natural voluntary control, they can effectively bring their body into the right orientation. Hence, the combination of the hydraulic damping and the carbon fiber composite spring very much acts like your muscles, and that's why we call it the biomimetic design. And now, Nigel, then, so when you were first fitted with a prosthetic, it did have a a fixed foot, but you're now wearing the echelon foot design. What differences have you felt, then? Shortly after trying it, I realised that I had all my foot to the floor and that I was actually feeling more secure, more stable. I was able to walk much longer distances. It was not necessarily about the time of the distance. It was about the lack of fatigue that I was feeling. This type of prosthetic, how, how would you summarise the real benefits of them? I think we're looking at a, a major advance in the comfort, the functionality and the general usability of the new generation of feet. We actually want to, as an amputee, to be able to walk more easily. The new generation are, are enabling amputees now to do what they want when they want and I think it's, it's the way forward for us. Nigel Kingston and Saeed Zahidi from Blatchford. They were showing Dave and Mira how to engineer artificial limbs and specifically ones with flexible ankles so that they can more closely mimic the process of human locomotion, resulting in more comfort for amputees. We're now on to a totally different subject, and that is one of milk. Here's this week's Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. This week, is there really only the milk of human kindness? Hi, this is Budi Prastia from Seattle, Washington. I have a question. Are humans the only animals to consume the milk of a different species? Thank you. Most of us will have seen our pets and various garden wildlife taking advantage of a source of cow's milk on occasion. But are we the only ones to drink it habitually? I'm Oliver Craig and I work at the University of York in the Department of Archaeology. In fact, we are. Well, at least we are as when we're adults. All juvenile animals can drink milk and that's because they have the enzyme lactase digest the milk sugars. But the gene that makes that enzyme gets switched off when they get to a certain age. So as adults, they can't drink it. And most humans, in fact, can't drink milk as adults. And it's only a very small fraction of the world's population who can. And what's really interesting, of course, is that those people live in a very geographically restricted area, i.e. northwest Europe and some parts of Africa. So it's a really interesting 
question as to why only a certain part of the population can drink milk. If you're lactose intolerant, you don't possess this enzyme lactase. So basically, the lactose that's in the milk doesn't get digested. It's a disaccharide, and it passes straight through the gut and goes into the colon, and it can cause all sorts of unpleasantness, including, well, what's generally quoted is some kind of explosive diarrhea. It's really, really nasty condition if you can't actually break these sugars down, but also cause these problems with water retention and all sorts of other problems as well. So really, you know, very ill, bad stomach and not actually being able to digest the, the sugar itself. So at some point in our history, it was a selective advantage for people in Northwest Europe, at least, to be able to drink milk. But does being lactose intolerant really put you at a selective disadvantage? Well, you wouldn't have thought it would really, would you? I mean, it's not going to impact on your your daily life massively. It's only going to be a selective disadvantage if there's a real advantage in being able to drink milk, fresh milk. It comes back to the question then, why is being able to drink milk such a selective advantage? The answer to that is what we really don't know, and that's what we're trying to research and find out and the, the first thing we need to do is find out when or what point in our in our history did that need to drink milk actually occur as far as we know humans are the only animals to drink the milk of another species regularly but only a small proportion of humans have the lactase enzyme cats and dogs are often seen taking delights in a serving of milk though i'd rather not consider the consequences An excellent find on our forum came from Jackass Penguin, who cited the red-billed oxpecker, a bird that can pech on the udders of an impala and drink its milk. Elsewhere, in Isla de Guadalupe, feral cats, seagulls and sheathbills have been observed stealing the milk directly from the teats of elephant seals. So perhaps milk stealing does happen a little more than we currently know. Next week, how does the brain deal with Braille? Hi, I am Friedrich Kemers. Because I am visually impaired, I read Braille instead of normal text. So I was wondering, does the mind process text in a different way when reading Braille? Thanks for taking my question. Bye. Is Braille seen in the mind the same way as text, or can the brain do without the visual imagery? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com, or write them on our forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thank you, Diana O'Carroll. If you want to get in touch, do drop us an email to chris at the Naked Scientists if you have any questions that you would like dianalyzed in a question of the week in future. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Many thanks to Valerie Selimpour and also Paul Trotman for joining us on the programme. Next week, we've got the first question and answer show of 2011, so keep your questions coming in by email to chris at nakedscientist.com or tweet us to at Naked Scientists. If you want to catch up on anything we've done, you can see the experiments we do or follow up on any of the news stories we cover. They're all online at nakedscientists.com. Thank you to our production team, Ben Vowsler, Tom Simpkins, Mira Senthalingam, Louise Ogden, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. And until next time, goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.